Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is the art of charm. Learn everything you need to know to crush it in business, love, and life. Today we're talking with my friend Chris Gullibo. He's a writer, traveler, and entrepreneur. He spent a decade visiting every country in the world, and now he's helping people find work they were born to do. I'll admit, I rolled my eyes a little when I heard Born for This, but honestly, the book is solid. It gives a lot of action steps to finding work and working conditions that are ideal for you in terms of flexibility, accountability, collaboration. It's not just what you do, it's how you do it. And we've got a lot of action steps, practical exercises, and drills for you to find and inch your way towards the work that you were born to do. And with that, welcome to The Art of Charm. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. I'm here with my producer, Jason. Hey, hey, hey. The Art of Charm brings together the best thought leaders, teachers, and exceptional individuals to teach you how to be a top performer in life, love, and at work. We may not have all the answers, but we definitely have all the questions. All right, let's talk to Chris Gullibo. So tell us what you do in one sentence. I'm a writer, traveler, and entrepreneur. There's a M dash here, so it's still one sentence. I spent maybe 10 years visiting every country in the world, and my latest project is to help people find the work they were born to do. The reason that guys like you are standing out are because you're putting the work into the craft. Your book is many times, in many ways, largely geared possibly towards millennials, and also people that are sick of their job, millennial or not. I'm interested in people who want to change their lives, right? And people can do that in different phases of their life and career and all that kind of stuff. So I think really young people don't necessarily take to it because they haven't lost anything yet. Do you know what I mean? Like really young people like still believe in the bright future. It's only when you kind of get dissatisfied. Like my market is the dissatisfied, basically. I like that. Let's talk about the dissatisfied. And this is kind of a tall order, right? Because when I got your book, Born for This, Find the Work You Were Born to Do, the first thing my ego did was roll its proverbial eyes. And I think you're probably used to that because the idea that, oh, you're born to do something is kind of alien to a lot of people. I think a lot of people think, well, I'm supposed to be doing this. And for me, my own personal path, the only one I can really speak to from experience, I had no friggin' clue what I was doing. And sometimes I'm like, I still don't. I'm real long for the ride here. I think it can be alienating and it can also be kind of interesting. It can be provocative. I don't actually think that everybody is supposed to know what they're born to do or supposed to know their life purpose when they're 20 or 25 or even when they're 40. I do think, though, when you look at people who are really successful, and by successful, I don't just mean rich or famous or high status, but people who are kind of living this purposeful life, like we can look at them from the outside and we're like, yeah, you know, not only they're happy, but they've actually kind of found this thing that 
it's really using their unique skills. I think we can say, okay, they are actually doing something that they were meant to do or born to do. And and I'm not really interested in the semantics of like, is it destiny? Is it fate? Do they make choice, et cetera? But I think we can identify this thing that where people come alive, right? And so that's what it's about for me. It's helping people find that sweet spot, however you want to think of it. Yeah, I like the way that you define it because of course, when you read books about getting into the right niche or getting into the right line of work, usually it's only a matter of time before it devolves into some sort of weird flowery language that means jack shit. You know what I mean? Yeah. And you did not do that, which I thought was awesome. I didn't expect you to, but I also didn't have high hopes for anybody to be able to really nail this one. And I feel like you did because you narrowed it down to joy, money, and flow. And there wasn't this whole like, well, once you really enjoy something, the money doesn't matter anymore, because that's plainly not true. It's a nice thought that, you know, you can feed your kids on the fact that you love your job, but it's just not the case. Right, right. First of all, I agree with the initial premise of the book. Everyone's lifespan is essentially short. We wanna learn something, we wanna do something. How did you come to this path of joy, money, and flow? I mean, were you ever kind of in the dead-end job circuit? It doesn't seem like that's very much something you've suffered from in the past. No, me personally, I haven't suffered from the dead-end job circuit, and that's because I was a terrible employee. I wasn't good at working for anybody else. My first job, I was age 14, and I was a dishwasher. And like when a pot or a pan would come back and it was really dirty, I would take it outside and throw it away in the dumpster. That's probably not how you're supposed to do that. How long did it take? Well, how long did it last? Yeah, it, it was uh, it was great for a week. And then after a week, they kind of started running out of pots and pans, you know, and they're like, what the hell's going on? So, of course, I was fired from that. And then I was fired from another few random jobs. And I kind of had to find my way. You know, I had to find my way through self-employment and entrepreneurship. So, you know, my struggle wasn't let me escape the corporate job that sucks. My struggle was kind of like, how can I build something for myself or create something for myself? In the beginning, it wasn't very like high-minded. In the beginning, it wasn't like, I want to change the world. You know, I want to empower, you know, entrepreneurs or artists. It was nothing like that. In the beginning, it was just like, well, I don't want to be a dishwasher. I don't want to work for someone else. So over time, like I traveled a lot. I lived in West Africa. I started this quest to visit every country in the world. Eight years ago, I started a blog that turned into books. So it was definitely a process. It was not a linear journey. You know, as for the joy, money, flow thing, like that comes out of extensive research that I do. And I appreciate you saying that, you know, the book is for the most part bullshit free. Hopefully it's at least 99% bullshit free. Like, I don't know if I'm ever at hundred percent, but I don't want to just kind of, you know, recite platitudes or say like, here's how to change your life or here's how to like be inspired or something. Like I'm not really a follow your passion kind of guy. I do think, you know, as you said, life is short, so we should find a way to do something that we enjoy, but it should also be financially viable. It should also be something that uses our skills where we can kind of point to it and say, okay, you know, I made that or I did that. And that actually was easy for me and it was hard for other people. So that's kind of where that model comes from. And just observing that a lot of the people that I talk to, whether they were famous people or just kind of ordinary people who had found this, this life of purpose, they did kind of come to this intersection of all three of those qualities, joy, money, and flow. I identify a lot with this as well, right? Of course, I really enjoy most of what I do here at The Art of Charm. It happens to now pay well, which is really cool because it, you know, for a long time it was awful. Early in the game, I was living in Manhattan making 24 grand a year, which I think is slightly less than somebody who takes tickets at a movie theater anywhere in America, probably. Yeah, probably so. That was a stressful thing, but I had the joy and the flow thing kind of going. And now when I do the show, it, it's pure flow, right? This is the kind of thing where I'm like, wow, I wish I could do these all the time. And then the reality sets in. Is it safe to say you can't have these things 100% of the time, but you should shoot for 
a respectable sort of a minus number when it comes to this? I think it's a journey. I think it's a process. I think we all kind of fall behind. We all kind of get in situations where we keep doing things, you know, the same way, not necessarily because it's the most amazing thing, but it's because of what we've done before. But I mean, again, like you have found that sweet spot and you have done it through this repeated practice. And now you've done it, what, 400 times or 500 times. There's probably other stuff that you recorded that isn't even out in addition to all your other stuff. So you had this inkling of where it was going and maybe it wasn't, you know, lucrative in the beginning, but at least it was sustainable at a low level, essentially, like even the 24 grand in Manhattan, it's not great, but you made that yourself. You could point to it and be like, I did that. That is fun. Like that is empowering. And it does give you confidence to say, okay, I'm going to keep building. And like, you know, we're going to turn this into something big. And, you know, maybe it wouldn't have happened. And if it didn't work out, you would have done something else that was, you know, also big and important. I think that was it. Like you're not a hundred percent always in the joy money flow or whatever you want to call it. But, you know, it is this thing where we're working toward it and we can identify when we're in it. Why joy? I understand that it's important to be happy because I know a lot of people that have their lives mostly together. They don't love their job, but are we asking too much? Well, I would say, what is the goal? Like, what are we trying to work toward? And everybody who's listening to this, like they've already kind of identified themselves as being interested in self-improvement one way or another. The reason they listen to the show, I mean, of course, it's entertaining, it's interesting, but they actually want to get something out of it. And so if you're talking about can you settle in life? Can you make compromises? Of course, people do it all the time. And maybe there is a season, you know, where like you work at a job that sucks because you need more money or something. Like after I got fired from the dishwasher job, I delivered pizza for a while, you know, and that wasn't like the greatest thing ever in my life, but it was fine for a season. However, I think like if we're talking about, okay, if we are trying to create work, that's not just, you know, something that I do as a means to an end. This is a third of our lives, right? A third of our lives essentially are spent at work. So why not try to find something that is not just like following our passion, but it is something that makes us happy. It is something we take joy in because when we take joy in it, we also take pride in it. We're going to do a better job. We're probably going to be more successful at it. You know, we're probably going to end up making more money, whether we're working for somebody else or working on our own. So to me, it's like, yeah, there's a journey. We might have to settle. You might have to compromise. But is that really the goal? Like the goal is like three out of three, not just two out of three. Now, I can understand this. I find it's got to be very hard to truly be happy if you don't enjoy, for the most part, what's going to end up being the majority of your time. We all have to do stuff that we don't like. Like you probably have some paperwork. You probably have some degree of bullshit in your job. But again, like it's about percentages and it's about like at the end of the day, can you look back and be like, you know what? Like that was a good day. I made some progress on my goals. You know, I did work that I believed in. That to me is what it's all about. There's one quote in the book here that says, if you're not sure that your current work sparks joy, it probably doesn't. <laughs> right. When I read that, I thought, well, that's such a statement of the obvious. But then I realized, okay, Whenever I ask people whether or not they enjoy their job, much of the time there's some hesitation like, yeah, you know, parts of it are rewarding. And I'm thinking that's not really a ringing endorsement of XYZ profession. So maybe some of those people, they haven't actually had a job or they haven't had work that they really do enjoy. Once you have it, then it's very hard to go back. You know, it's like once you have this taste of freedom and independence, you know, those were the primary values for me as an entrepreneur being self-employed. Other people may not have those same values. Maybe they value contribution. Maybe they value like working as a team, but whatever kind of motivates you, like once you have that, then, you know, like then you'll be able to look back at when you're doing some other situation, you know, do I have joy in my work? Well, yes or no, you know, because I had it at that one time. Tell me about the working conditions argument. I mean, you're right. A lot of people, when they think about, okay, what career do I want? They're thinking as far as the job title and maybe the salary and that's it. 
Yeah. So this was really interesting. I mean, I was surprised by this myself. When people are six years old, they're thinking about like, what am I going to do when I grow up? Or when they're like 16 or 18, going to go to college or university, what am I going to study? Or when they're 60, making a career change, they think about exactly what you said, the profession, the vocation, I'm going to be a designer, I'm going to be a firefighter, I'm going to be an engineer, an accountant, whatever. And what I saw was just as important is what you mentioned, working conditions. So working conditions are things like how you like to spend your time, how you do your best work, the percentage of time you like to work with others versus working on your own because most of us need some of both, but the range is tremendous. How you like to be rewarded or compensated or incentivized, all this kind of stuff. And if you can start to understand like what your ideal working conditions are, I think that's just as important as understanding what your occupation is. And that relates a lot to happiness. And you can begin making changes in your working conditions, even if you can't change the content or the specific job right away. You mentioned specific conditions in the book as well, like flexibility, accountability, sense of contribution, which you had mentioned earlier, collaboration, which you mentioned earlier, deliverables, security, which I'll focus on in a little bit, and intangible benefits. And I, I think these are very specific. And again, I was pleasantly surprised to see those in there because you write, you can't just find the best possible work. You also have to find or create the working conditions that best suit your personality and preferences. These are often overlooked, and you've got an exercise here to sort of rank these things by priority to find out what those preferences are. Right, because it's gonna be unique for each person. You know, this is something that very much is personality-based, based on your own experience and how you do the best work, as you said. And so the key point is, you won't actually be happy unless you have the right blend of both the kind of work that you're doing and the way that you do it. So if you're doing something that you believe in, like it is a good job or whatever, but the working conditions suck, like you have a conflict with your colleague and it stresses you out, or you have a boss that's always negative, or the time schedule doesn't work for you or your family or whatever, then you're going to be stressed out. Or you could have like really good conditions. You could be working for like a tech startup, for example, and like, you know, all three of your meals are free and they have all these benefits and it's just this great thing, but you don't actually believe in what you're doing. Then you're going to be unfulfilled. So if you don't want to be stressed, if you don't want to be unfulfilled, the whole goal is like the right work and doing it the right way, the right job, the right working conditions. Tell me about flow, because this is something we've talked about a lot on the show with like Stephen Kotler and, you know, books by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi, those kind of crazy, like deep flow state, meditative almost types of things. Why is flow important and how do we know we're headed in that direction? Yeah, I mean, it can be this deep thing or you can think about it really simply. The way I think about it is flow is the kind of work that we do that's very natural for us. And each of us has probably a lot of different things that we do in our job. You know, we do things that come really easy, some things that are really difficult, some things we like, some things we don't, et cetera. So flow is the kind of work where you can get lost in, where you can spend hours and you don't realize that the time has gone by. Or it's the kind of thing where you do it really well and other people struggle with it. You know, if you're trying to figure out, okay, what kind of work is this for me? Sometimes what helps is if you do any group work and there's a meeting and they're like, okay, we got this task for somebody and this task for somebody. You know, the group looks at you and they're like, Jordan, you know, here's the task for you. You give this task to Jordan because he's going to do a great job with it. It's almost like the group is identifying like, here's where, you know, he or she finds flow. Here is where he or she like uses their skills, you know, to the best possible benefit. And so the reason why it's important is because you could be happy in your work, you could have money, but really like using your skills in a unique way, that leads much more to purpose. And again, if we think about people who found the work they were born to do, like whether you like that phrase or not, you can kind of point to them and say, okay, it's not just that they're happy and they have money. They're actually doing something really interesting. They're doing something that does relate to their unique skill set. And not everybody could do that. I think that's interesting. That's your strong competitive advantage. If you're able to get that whole flow state going, doing an element of work, you're already 
probably by definition better at that than the vast majority of people, meaning this is a quote unquote natural strength of yours, whether you've developed it or not over the last decade, of course. So while we're doing this work, do we spend the majority of our time in flow or is this like what sort of percentage of the equation are we looking at here? Yeah, I guess it depends on who we're talking about. I use some examples of famous people like Roger Federer or something. You know, Roger Federer, he could have done a lot of different things in his life. He could have been a Swiss watchmaker, right? He could have been an accountant. But, you know, thankfully, you know, he didn't. He kind of found a way to master this craft and be the best in the world. So obviously, like when he's playing tennis, you know, most of the time, unless he's having a really bad day or something, I would say that's flow. He does a lot more than just play tennis, right? There's a whole business, there's a whole infrastructure, there's the training, there's all the travel, there's all of that. So it's hard to know the specific percentage. To me, it's more about the focus. It's like, what is the outcome? Why do we do the work? What are we building? What is the deliverable? You know, what's the product? Like, how are people's lives going to be affected? And, you know, to me, that's what I kind of think about when I think about how do I want to get more flow in my life. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. 
You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. You know, I think it's a very important decision when you're looking at a profession and to that angle, to that end, it's funny because whenever I talk to say professional athletes or something like that or a super high performer, I often think, okay, when I was playing high school football or something, what did I hate? I hated practice, you know, it's cold, you're running, and I thought maybe I'm obviously just not cut out for this sport because I hate practice. I asked these professional athletes, like these guys make millions and millions of dollars doing something that they quote unquote love, that they were definitely born to do, and I ask them, so what do you think of practice, you know? And they're, oh, it sucks, it's the worst, I hate it. A lot of them are like, I hate the training element of what they're doing because at some level, yeah, maybe it's fun to run routes and catch passes for a few hours every single day, but what really sucks is running sprints in the snow. Like, no matter who you are, you probably hate that, right? There's some people that don't, of course, those people who run, like, Spartan races and kind of get off on that whole thing, you know? But most of those people are just normal. They just happen to push through that stuff to get good at what they know is going to be their sort of Friday night lights, literally or figuratively. Right. When you're discussing this in the book, we wanna constantly be optimizing our work life so we spend more time in flow. At least that's what I read between the lines. Would you agree with that? I would agree with that. And I think the observation you just made, those professional athletes who hate practice, but yet somehow they're still able to do it. Somehow they are still able to spend hours and hours on practice and probably a lot more hours on practice and drills and training and preparation and reviewing tapes and all that than they ever spend playing. I would say that they're outcome focused. You know, They actually recognize this as an important prerequisite you know, to get to whatever it is that they desire, whether it is that Friday night light thing or traveling the world and playing in the US Open or the Australia Open. And I wonder if they really hate all of it, you know, maybe they do. But it seems like that's a lot of time to spend saying that this sucks. You know, maybe part of it sucks, but part of it is just kind of like, well, I go and do that because I believe in the greater thing that's going to come about later. Yeah, it's hard to say. I mean, I think when they're thinking of practice sucks, they're probably thinking when they have to run wind sprints during the off-season to stinch, that's probably awful. But I think, yeah, suiting up and going into the stadium and running routes because you're about to go up against a big rival, I would assume there's an adrenaline factor there that, that you can't ignore. For example, in my own case, most people who listen to the show are actually surprised to hear that I don't love reading. In fact, I kind of disliked it for a really long time and I read maybe one or two books every single week, and the reason is because I know it's going to make the show that much better, not because I just can't get enough books, especially in the same genre, day in and day out, all the same, you know, many of the points overlapping. Like, very often, I'll read something where I'm just like, oh my gosh, this was not something I wanted to even finish, and I'll do it, and the show will be great, and it's all worth it. Right. That's the wind sprints for me, but it takes on a whole different meaning when I'm looking at it in context, rather than when I'm looking at that as sort of an end into itself. And I think that's extremely important for people building career capital, and you argue in the book that all big career decisions should get us closer to this trifecta of joy, money, and flow. Yeah, so basically you're making an investment. You're making this small investment, reading one book or two books a week, because it's gonna get you closer to that goal of greater flow, greater outcome, greater product, greater podcast, in the same way that the athlete does the wind sprint, right? 
So I think you've connected it to a vision. If it was this isolationist thing, then there wouldn't be any reason for it. You know, if you're just reading the same book all the time or the same points, then you should do something different, right? Yeah. You know, when I think about the decisions, it's big decisions and small decisions, both. Like when we think about the work we're meant to do or whatever that journey that we're on, it's not just how am I going to change my career? How am I going to quit my job tomorrow and start a business or whatever the goal is? It's part big decisions and then part optimization, part tweaks. You know, what can I do tomorrow to have a better day than I did today? And how can I change some of my working conditions to get more aligned with how I do my best work? Now, counterintuitively, you argue in the book, giving up is a viable strategy that is too often ignored. And this is great because this is some real talk right here. Everyone's like, try again. You miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Tell me why you hate that so much or why you dislike that. Well, I hate it because it's terrible advice. I hate it because it's not helpful for people. And most successful people in life have given up on a lot of stuff. Most successful people in life are not successful because they identified this one goal and then just kind of charged ahead and pushed everything out to the outside or something. They actually like moved forward and then they encountered obstacles and sometimes they went back. They went back to a fork in the road and they took the other path. And, you know, I talked to a lot of people who started businesses and they've had very successful businesses. And I say, did you have any other businesses? And, you know, if it's very common for someone to say, oh, my first business failed, I worked on it for three years. If you had gone to that person in year three of their first business and your advice was, hey, just keep going, like never give up, you know, be persistent because persistence is the quality of success. That would have been terrible for them. Right. The best thing for them to do was to shut that business down and go on to something else. And you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. The whole problem with that, which is a great quote, you know, you put it on Instagram, you get a lot of likes. The whole problem is you don't get unlimited shots, right? Especially in the athletic metaphor. You don't actually get an unlimited number of times to try something. And, and even if you did, why would you keep trying the same way? So to me, like the greatest lesson is, yes, don't give up on your life vision. Like always keep trying, but don't keep trying the same thing. Mix it up. Most successful people have tried a lot of different stuff. Not all of it has worked. That's okay. They regroup, they move forward. Well, how do we know when to give up? I think here's an easy thing you can do. You ask yourself two questions. Is it working? Do I still like it? Okay, and so then you have a little matrix of the answers. If it's working and you still like it, easy enough, you keep doing it. If it's not working, you don't like it, easy enough, you quit. So it's only complicated when the answers are in conflict. If it's not working, but you still like it, the question is, okay, can it work? Is it just the case where... I'm in Manhattan, I'm making $24,000 a year. So in some ways it's not working. Look at this vision. Like I still like what I'm doing. I believe that I'm building something here. It could get to something so much bigger. So I'm going to keep going. Or if it's the opposite thing where you're like, it's actually working pretty well, but you know, I'm kind of tired of it. Like I want to do something different. Maybe it's a question of, I just need to move on. Maybe if it's a business, I need to find a way to sell it. If it's a good job, that's okay. Maybe I need to leave it. I mean, sometimes the best time to leave a, a good job is right before you get sick of it. So I think there's your answer, basically. If it's going well, you keep doing it. If it's not, you stop. If it's in conflict, you have to kind of look at it a little bit more detail. Sure. Yeah, in the book, quitters never win is a lie. Sometimes you just need a new game to play, right? Right. And sure. one key bit of wisdom that I liked was when the stakes are low, you can make changes or give up quickly. Can you discuss that a little? Because I thought that was kind of insightful. I mean, yeah, when the stakes are low, you've got an entirely different set of options. Right. I generally don't encourage people to quit their job right away. Like people who hate their job, like it's a soul sucking job. I want to quit it. I want to do something else. You know, I'm not generally like a quit your job and, you know, jump off into the wilderness kind of guy. But, you know, the decision there is very different if you're 20 years old, single, no responsibilities, or if you're 35 or 40 and you got a family, you got some debt, you know, all these different things, responsibilities and obligations. You know, if you're 20 years old, the stakes are pretty low. 
you know, if the job sucks, why don't you just quit? Like, you'll be okay. You'll figure something out. You know, you're not going to screw up the rest of your life if your first job out of college turns out to be a disaster. But then if you're older, right, stakes are higher. Maybe I need to build a plan. Maybe I need to like actually create a side business and then go off into that. Maybe I need to find a way to get promoted or change companies or change industries or something like that. And then the same is true with any kind of career investment or any kind of side hustle that you're starting. I mean, I wrote a book before called The $100 Startup, which was all about helping people start businesses without spending a lot of money, without going into debt, without going to business school, without writing an 80-page business plan that nobody ever reads. You know, to me, it's like, if the stakes are low and the risk is low, then if it doesn't work out, no problem, you're going to try something else. It's only when you're invested. I've spent a year on this thing and I spent a lot of money and it's not working. It's still probably the best decision to walk away, but it's a lot harder to walk away because you feel like I've already put all this into it. Therefore, it should count for something, even if it doesn't. So it gets psychologically more difficult in addition to the financial consequences. Right. There's some cost fallacy and everything involved with that. And of course, that might be one of the reasons why more people don't pursue a life of freedom slash independence. Yeah, they don't know how, but also the perceived risk is so much higher. Yeah, well, I like how you said perceived risk. You know, sometimes it is legitimate risk and sometimes it is just, I don't know what that life looks like, but it's got to be very difficult. It's got to be risky. There's got to be a high chance of failure, et cetera. And so the more you can kind of dip your toe in the water, you realize like maybe it's not actually that risky. Maybe it is actually the safest choice for me to go out on my own, or it is the safest choice for me to take what I thought was this huge risk. Right, in the book, you discuss the method of identifying the hazards, listing them out with sort of these sometimes worst case consequences, and you start to see through that process why it's unlikely to happen, and frankly, manageable much of the time if they do happen. Yeah, just as most successful people don't follow this linear path, most successful people also make a lot of mistakes. It's not just about giving up. They actually make mistakes and the mistakes can inform our future decisions because when we make a lot of these decisions, especially at an early age, we don't have all the information. It's like you have to choose what you're going to study in college. It goes to this career, but you don't really know what that's like. Like maybe you took a skills test and your guidance counselor said, you know, you would be good in this field or something, but you don't really know what the working conditions are like. Like we discussed, you don't even know what that field is like. Maybe you discover something else totally later. So the way that you come to that is by experimenting and experimentation always involves mistakes. That's okay. Where do you stand with the backup plan thing? Because, you know, some of the more sort of inspirational type of people are like, oh, you don't need one because if you've got a plan A and a plan B, you're always going to fall back to plan B. People listening know where I stand on that, of course, a little bit more rational. And it sounds like you and I agree on this. I would love to hear what you think of the quote unquote backup plans. I mean, I think it's kind of like that you miss 100% of the shots you don't take. Like it sounds good, but then you start to decode it or deconstruct it. And you're like, really? Is that really the best case? So I probably used to say some of those things too about like, screw the backup plan. Like I'm going to go all in with something, you know, but I actually think it's very wise to say, first of all, I am invested in this. I do believe in this project or this process or whatever I'm working toward. I I believe in it, but I'm also going to say, you know, if it doesn't go exactly as I hoped, or even if it's a complete disaster, I'm going to have a plan B. Then I'm going to have a plan C. I'm going to have a plan D. You know, I'm not going to give up in the long-term vision again. Like I've got this long-term vision. There is something that I have to do with my life. I'm going to figure out what it is. But if it takes me some time to get there, that's okay. I'm going to always have a bridge. I'm going to always have a fallback plan. And you don't have to tell anybody your fallback plan. You don't have to make it public. It can just be kind of like in your head or in your notes or like, I'm going to go this far down this path. And if I get this far and I haven't seen the results that I want, then I'm going to proceed to the next plan. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to proceed to the one after that. So I'm pro backup plan. Yeah. I mean, if plan A fails, you've got 25 letters left, right? As you wrote in the book. And I like the idea 
that backup plans allow us to take on more risk. And I think that's the key that's actually overlooked by most people because I totally get not wanting to have too many backup plans in place and then you're focusing on those things and then when the going gets tough, you're like, well, plan B sounds so much easier, kind of grass is greener on the other side of the fence or maybe you're making a decision based on fear of missing out. There's all kinds of things like that. But I like the idea that having a backup plan in place allows you to step just that much further out on that limb because if it breaks, you've got something in mind that you can do. You're not just thinking, geez, if I take all this risk and I fail, I'm homeless or whatever. Right. So therefore, your chances of success may actually be greater because you're able to step further out on that ledge, ironically. Yeah. It's super counterintuitive to think, well, if I'm focused on maybe making sure these two areas are in place for me, that you would be more successful in one because it's kind of like, well, you know, you need to muster all your resources for your initial plan. Mm -hmm. Probably you won't be able to execute it to that level, to the extreme level that you might need to to succeed if you're actually worrying about what happens if you fail. But if you have that plan B and it's actually solid enough to get you by, you can take more risk and you can play bigger. And we've seen the rewards of that in the past as well. Yeah, totally agree. So the backup plan is there in your pocket. Maybe it's not necessarily in front of you all the time. You just know it's there because you're still committed to your vision. You know, you're still committed. But as you said, if it doesn't work out, you've got something else. You bring this into the workplace as well, stating that a side hustle isn't just nice. It's actually a necessity now because it brings disproportionate amounts of confidence and security. I would love to hear more about that because, again, counterintuitive to have a side hustle from your regular job thinking, this is gonna distract from my work performance. And actually it allows you to build more career capital and move towards that joy money flow trifecta. Yeah, and there's a couple ways to look at this. You know, one way people tend to focus on scarcity and say, well, it's a very difficult economy, job market out there, like there's so little security and you could lose your position at any time, which is all true, it is totally true. And nobody will ever care about your career as much as you. So that's why I use this phrase, the self-employed employee. You know, I think it's good to think of yourself okay, if I want to work for a company or an organization, no problem, but I'm essentially leasing out my talents to them. It doesn't mean I'm not going to work hard for them. I'm going to do a good job and I make sure that I earn my keep and hopefully like far more. But at the same time, I'm also going to be building security and confidence for myself, you know, as you said. And this is the other perspective is, okay, it's not just because it's an imperative. It's not just because the world is a scary place or whatever. When you start the side hustle, when you spend, you know, an hour a day, a couple of hours on the weekend, whatever it takes to create this additional income source, even if it's very small, even if it's not a lot of money, it is disproportionately rewarding and confidence boosting. And I hear all the time, I get emails from people, you know, who've never been self-employed and they don't even necessarily want to become an entrepreneur, but they get their email in the morning of like, I got my PayPal notification. You know, somebody sent me $50 and it's so exciting. Or I signed my first client. You know, again, it's not the amount of money, it's the ability to earn income from more than one source, especially if you've only been employed before and you've never actually had any kind of business. The very first time that you begin seeing money coming from somewhere else, it just feels great. It does give you more options. It's a natural backup plan. And if your side hustle ends up being very successful, that's great. Then you can choose. Do I want to invest in this more or do I want to continue with my job? And if it is in fact that you love your job, then that's great. Then you keep going to your job because you want to, not because you have to. And that's a great place to be.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It is a great place to be. Even Art of Charm started as a side hustle for both me and AJ and everybody else here, in fact. It's just that when the economy hit a downturn, we were still doing well, and my regular job, I wasn't working at some sort of fungible, commoditized role. I mean, I was working at a top Wall Street position, and that's the one that actually shat the bed, right? And my side hustle at that point it wasn't crushing it by any stretch. Again, I made 25 grand a year in Manhattan, but the fact is I had lived below my means with my other career, which is great, because it gave me like a year plus of runway. I was able to then focus on Art of Charm, and I thought, okay, well, I can survive on this low pay for the first year, because I will literally not even take a dent in lifestyle because of my savings, and then the next year after that, I'll take a dent in lifestyle, but I'll be able to survive, and that's with zero growth. Right. So I was able to create that security. And when I left, I had five minutes of, what am I going to do now? We're all going to get laid off and I'm going to be screwed. And then I was like, ah, screw it. I'm just going to focus on this and it'll be fine. And if it's not, I'll just go do something else. And I never had to. And it was the only reason that I was able to have that security blanket was because of having that quote unquote side hustle, living below the means and having the debt largely paid in advance. And that extra income can translate to lower debt, whether we're talking about student loans or the golden handcuffs of all the crap you bought to make yourself happy in a pre-existing career. I think it was Mark Cuban who mentioned before that debt limits freedom and it limits your options. Mm -hmm. And if you've got that extra source of income, that debt's going away a lot faster, especially if you don't just use it to upgrade your lifestyle. Yeah, no, I love that story. And it's a great example of what we were talking about with the perceived risk. So, you know, ironically or not, your side hustle was actually a safer, more conservative choice. It was a better asset than that Wall Street job in the long run, right? So there's, there's probably some people listening who do have a lot of debt. And when I think of them, you know, we talked about optimization and tweaking earlier. That's almost like the wrong answer for them, because if your life is kind of screwed up in some way, and like my life has been screwed up in different ways in the past, for sure. But if your life is screwed up, you have to take major action. You can't just like tweak something. And so if you're $80,000 in debt or whatever the number is, a 4% raise in your day job is not going to help you with that. Right. You know what I mean? Like just as if your job sucks, if like the working conditions suck, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, hey, you know, every Monday is going to be Margarita Monday. You know, it's not going to solve the problem. You have to, you know, take dramatic action if you're in that kind of situation. Speaking of taking dramatic action, it's almost dramatic slash incremental action. In the book, you talk about improving the right type of skills, because a lot of people, especially, I would say, probably equal younger and older folks combined, we tend to focus on technical skills or what you call hard skills, where it's like, oh, you know, I learned this type of computer program and I've got the Sigma Six certification. That stuff's great, but you argue that the soft skills are actually what bring about some of the larger changes across different career paths. So the hard skills are what gets you into the job. And the hard skills are kind of the prerequisite, that Six Sigma thing, that programming language you had to learn, those nursing qualifications, whatever it is. 
but the soft skills are what helps you stand out, basically. And soft skills are things that are not taught in college, usually, or even on the job. And they're things like communication, like follow up, like follow through, like being that person who actually gets things done. You know, we've all been in these meetings where lots of good ideas kind of get batted around, but no one takes responsibility for them. And like the next week, you're back having the meeting again and talking about the same thing. So you can learn to be that person who's actually kind of on the ball and following up and communicates well and negotiates well. I mean, negotiating is also a really important soft skill. If you can learn to negotiate for yourself in a way that also makes the other party look good, that's fantastic. So improving soft skills is actually more important than improving hard skills, I think, because there's always somebody else who can learn more programming languages than you. There's somebody else who's going to get another certification, especially in this global economy. Competing on hard skills is not the way to go. Those are the prerequisites. But to help you stand out, you have to master these other skills. Yes. And these are skills versus qualifications. And I think one of the reasons we focus on soft skills pretty much exclusively at The Art of Charm is because not only are these more important across careers and not only are they more generally applicable, but yes, they are taught the least. And further, when people are younger in not just physically, but younger in their career, especially those of us who are in our 20s and 30s, still quote unquote young, the only way often enough that we can actually stand out in a work environment is through soft skills. If you're coming in first, second, third, fifth year out of college, you're probably not going to be the most skilled quality control engineer at the telecom company. That's very unlikely, almost impossible. However, you might be one of the best communicators and most well-liked. You might be one of the best, quote unquote, natural leaders in the company. You might be somebody who can tie diverse groups of people and get them working together. Those types of skills turn out to be the only thing that can really net you that job, that coveted project or position when you're 30, or when you're 25 versus somebody who's like, look, I'm 43. I know the telecom QA quadrant better than anybody in the industry, but that guy doesn't have those soft skills in place. That's the only thing that makes us competitive with somebody like that. That's a great point. That's fantastic. And I would just add that soft skills are more memorable as well. Like when you work with people, people are different. People are interviewing for something or competing with something. You're going to remember the person who has the better communication skills. You're going to remember the person who followed up better the person who stood out. It's not going to be because they had more lines on their resume. Right. It's not going to be because they were a better quality control engineer or whatever. Once you get in the pool, like you have to be qualified. You need those basic prerequisites. But then from there, like how are decisions made? And decisions are not usually made quantitatively. It's not like you're just ranked according to the technical abilities that you've acquired through education or training. The decisions are going to be made based on how you stand out, how you communicate. Yeah, very few people I know that hire say, wow, this guy has all A's on his transcript. We need this guy in here. <laughs> That's a great point. You know, oh, is that the guy that picked his nose and wiped it on his sock? Yeah, but he has all A's. I mean, he's a smart cookie. Nobody wants that guy around. When I was helping hire at the law firm, nobody ever said, man, look at the spreadsheet this guy sent in with his whatever's on it. I, that was really well done. I mean, we didn't even look at most of that stuff until after we met with the person and decided they were worthwhile, where HR screens in like this bottom rung, acceptable grades, acceptable degree from an acceptable school. And then we meet them and then we narrow it down after that. Yeah, you make your decisions when you meet them basically. And afterwards, you're just kind of like background checking them. It's almost due diligence, like, oh, let's make sure this person can actually spell. I mean, it's that kind of stuff. And even then, it's very forgivable. Oh, well, you know, we have people for that. You know, if we really like them and we think they're a real fit. And those are all soft skills. And many, many a person has lost a job because they came in and they just couldn't make that impression or somebody else just did a better job. Absolutely.
So before we upgrade our skills, it seems like we should identify where our current skills are. And in the book, you, you have a sort of an actionable item here, making a list of things that you do well. Can you guide us through that? I think that's important. I don't think many people actually ever take the time to do this. Yeah, so when you make a list of things you do well, I think it should be a very comprehensive list. And most of us, the very first things we're gonna think of are things that relate to our education, our training, maybe our initial job experience. And that's fine, you should put those down. But then I think you should go a little bit deeper and things you go well. Think about the questions your friends ask you. Like what topics are you the authority in when they come to you? Like what are they going to you for? Think about the jobs that you've had. Like where have you actually been the most helpful? Maybe it's something that had nothing to do with your training or your experience, um, but it was a totally different thing. And then you can ask people as well. Like we mentioned being in the group and the group is kind of like, oh, Jordan should do this. Let's create a very comprehensive inventory of our skills because that's going to relate to a lot of different things. It's going to relate to what the best side hustle might be. It's going to relate to how we can stand out more in our jobs and become indispensable. Therefore, we're more valuable. We're going to stay there or go somewhere else. All that kind of stuff. I mean, the idea is like, here is me. You know, here's Chris. Here's Jordan. Here's whoever's listening. And these are all the different things I'm good at. And it should be, like I said, a pretty long list, right? It shouldn't just be a few things. Yeah, I think when we're forced to kind of stretch and see what have I been good at, what are some things other people think I'm good at, you can start to spot light shining through the cracks, if you will, because a lot of us are really hard on ourselves and we think we're maybe only sort of good at something or we can never get good at anything. And not everybody, of course, but and others of us are probably delusional and a reality check wouldn't hurt either. For sure. Well, then then you look at the trends. You know, if you have like a five page, you know, single space list of all the things you do well, then maybe that you're too far on that other side. You know, I think most of us are more on the side of like lacking confidence and not sure like, you know, what are true skills compared to anybody else or something. But then you kind of say, okay, what are the trends or the, the light that shines through? I like that phrase. What do these things have in common? Maybe there's a whole area here that I haven't realized. You know, maybe it is that I'm really good at communication. I need to apply this communication skill in a technical way or something in a way that nobody else in my department or no one else in my industry is doing, or maybe it's something entirely different, but hopefully there's some interesting information we can get from that. Yeah, I would say, look, if you're falling on the side of overly confident, that exercise might not be necessary because you're probably already taking a ton of risk. Right, which is great. Which is great, and then maybe life will put you in check, but that's okay, that's different, different problem, different solution. One thing that I did really enjoy, and that was kind of confusing and counterintuitive, was the idea of quitting your job slash school every year. Explain that to us, because it sounds a little bit reckless on its face. Yeah, well, it doesn't have to be reckless, because you don't actually have to quit every year. I came up with this exercise, partly for myself, because I do feel very fortunate. Like, I have this great career, I write books, I have a wonderful community, I do work that I believe in, but I also wanna be careful and make sure that I'm not just kind of doing the same thing year after year, just because it's what I know to do. So, I created this exercise, it's basically just kind of like a little prompt or a paragraph that you kind of can write, or you keep, you know, in your Evernote, or however you keep stuff on your calendar, and every year, you're like, okay, at the end of this year, whether it's a calendar year or depending on when I start one year later, I'm going to make a commitment that I'm going to resign my job or I'm going to drop out of school or I'm going to quit whatever my main focus is unless it turns out to be that that is, in fact, the best thing. And then when you do that exercise, you know, one of two things is going to happen. You're going to be like, oh, shit, I'm doing the wrong thing. I need to make some changes. Or you're going to be able to say, you know what, I'm actually like totally on track and maybe I need to tweak something, but this is actually great. And when that happens, then you don't have to doubt yourself. You don't have to worry. You don't have to say like, oh, maybe the grass is greener somewhere else. It's going to help you to either be dissatisfied or satisfied 
But the idea is that you'll know either way. So you resign your job every year unless it is the best thing to keep going. Right. And then, of course, if you do decide to leave, how do we start to choose between the multiple paths laid out in front of us? You know, we have different options and you argue expand and then limit them. I would love to hear more about that process. Yeah. So I came up with this theory because there's a lot of you know debate about saying yes to things, saying no to things. It's kind of like the inspirational advice about giving up. Right. A lot of entrepreneurial advice is very much about filtering and saying no to lots of things and choosing a niche and being very specific. And I think that's great advice for people like Elon Musk, or let's not go so high, but that's great advice for someone who's already fulfilled and purposeful, and they've been through lots of different things, and they really have kind of found the work they were born to do. But if it's an earlier stage in your life and your career, and you are kind of experimenting, and you're not sure like where everything is going, you know there's a journey, but you're not all the way down it. I think it's actually much better to have less of a filter at that point and to say yes to more opportunities, to say yes to more ideas, even if they don't work out. And by doing so, you're essentially creating more options for yourself. Um, You are building that thing on the side while you're pursuing the traditional career. Maybe you're open to some different hobbies. You know, maybe you're actually trying to learn more things or expand your interests, both the soft skills and the hard skills. And then at a certain point, like once you latch on to, okay, here is my focus. Maybe it's not a super niche, but I've actually found something that I'm good at. I'm going to go into this. Now I'm going to start applying that filter more strictly. I'm going to start saying no to things. And there might be an option that comes up. It's actually a good option, but I'm going to say no to it because I already have enough options. I have enough opportunities and my eyes are on the prize. That's what I'm working on. But you don't shut off the options until you know which ones are the best for you. Right. And we can eliminate some options right off the bat that don't follow the joy money flow model. Exactly. Perfect. There's a lot more actionable stuff in the book as well for people who are kind of thinking, okay, I'm ready to take the plunge. There's a lot of sort of side hustle information, writing the resume from the future, choosing career options that are more likely to make your future career reality, et cetera. Don't have time to get into all that, but I want people to know that it's there. And is there anything that I haven't asked you that you wanna make sure that you bring across? Obviously, we will link to the book in the show notes as well, but is there something that you just can't believe I haven't asked you yet? No, you've. I, this has been a very comprehensive conversation, which is great. I'm really glad we touched on the fact that most you know, successful people do not follow a linear path. You don't have to feel burdened with pressure that you're supposed to know your life purpose. And there is this thing that you're born to do. And if you haven't found it by age 21, then you're a failure or a screw up. And it's okay to give up on stuff. And actually successful people do give up because then they find something better afterwards. So I think we've touched on a lot. Perfect. Thank you so much, Chris. Really appreciate you coming in and repeating something you probably are sick of working on at this point, I would imagine. No, this is great. No, no, I really believe in it. I hope it helps people. So thank you so much, Jordan. And thanks to the great audience for listening as well. Take care, Chris. Okay, take care. Bye-bye. Super interesting show with Chris. The dude is smart. What can I say? For a guy who used to throw his pens and pots away during his first job because he didn't even want to do the work, this is a guy who figured it out for a lot of us and for himself especially. Joy, money, and flow, a really undeniable recipe for success. And I encourage all of you, if you're looking at a transition or you're not quite sure how to do it, the book is really action-oriented. It's not just, you can do it. There's a lot of action steps. In fact, there are so many we couldn't even get into just because of time constraints here on the show. So I hope you enjoyed that one with Chris Gullibo. And of course, you can thank him on Twitter. We'll have that linked in the show notes as well as the other resources mentioned on the show, including his book, of course. You can tap our album art in most mobile podcast players to see the cheat sheet for this episode and we link to the show notes directly on your phone. I'm also on Twitter, a lot of stuff that never makes it to the show, articles, insights, at The Art of Charm on Twitter, and you can find our amazing sponsors in the show notes or at theartofcharm.com slash advertisers. 
I also want to encourage you to join us in our social capital challenge at theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. That's C-H-A-R-M-E-D to 33444. It's all about improving your networking and connection skills and inspiring those around you to develop a personal and professional relationship with you. We'll also email you our fundamentals toolbox that covers topics like body language, nonverbal communication, persuasion, business networking, public speaking, negotiation, and a whole lot more. I'm also doing regular videos with drills and exercises to help you move forward every single week. It will make you a better networker. It will make you a better connector. That's theartofcharm.com slash challenge or text charmed to 33444. This episode of the Art of Charm podcast was produced by Jason DeFilippo. Jason Sanderson is our audio engineer and editor. Show notes on the website are by Rob Fogarty. I'm your host, Jordan Harbinger. Go ahead, tell your friends, because the greatest compliment you can give us is a referral to someone else either in person or shared on the web. Now stay charming and leave everything and everyone better than you found them. Thanks for listening to The Art of Charm. Get more confidence, relationship skills, life hacks, and more at theartofcharmpodcast.com.